We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by former AmCham Taipei President William Foreman. Always great to be here. And Xiaoxing Chung, an advisor for independent lawmaker Freddie Lim. Good to see everyone this week. Tonight we'll be discussing a focus on human rights on, well, well, Human Rights Day. Talk of Japanese food products from areas affected by the 2011 Fukushima meltdown. The Cabinet and the Central Bank taking steps to rein in speculation in the local property market. A temple festival that was possibly slightly a bit too noisy in Taipei. Taiwan's Character of the Year and Google's Taiwan's Most Searched Terms for 2020. But we'll begin with coronavirus quarantine controversy. And the Taipei City Department of Health on Wednesday was defending its decision to fine four visiting DJs 10,000 NT each for violating coronavirus quarantine regulations. Now, the DJs were fined for that offence in early November. But the case has sparked heated debate this week after it was reported that a Filipino migrant worker was recently fined 100,000 NT by health authorities in Kaohsiung for slipping out of his room for eight seconds at a quarantine hotel. Now, according to the Taipei City Disease Control Division, the DJs from the US and Europe were housed in a private residence and did not leave the premises but congregated in the living room without wearing face masks while the migrant Filipino worker was quarantined at a hotel where people are not permitted to leave their rooms and he broke that regulation after entering a public space in the hotel's hallway. Now Central Epidemic Command Centre spokesman Zhuang Renshang said local governments have the autonomy with regards to fines for violations of quarantine regulations. Now the visiting DJs in Taipei were fined under the Communicable Disease Control Control Act, while the fine against the Filipino worker was under the Special Act for the Prevention, Relief and Revitalization Measures for Severe Pneumonia and Novel Pathogens. Now, that law was enacted in February of this year as part of the government's coronavirus prevention and control measures. So, Bill, two contrasting fines there in two contrasting cities. Yes, I, I found it very interesting uh, for the Filipino worker. Uh, what I found especially interesting is that this really blew up on the on the, in the Taiwan community on Twitter, where people are trying to organize a, a crowdfunding campaign to help out this poor guy. Um, on, on the one hand, though, it's it um, it surprises me because I've always I've always in my experience uh, I've always seen Taiwan society and government as being somewhat seem somewhat lenient and. Um, flexible sometimes in these types of cases. But on the other hand, you know, you got to look at this. Um, Taiwan's done a brilliant job in the past 10 or 11 months uh, containing this this virus. And, you know, if it goes sideways, a lot, the big threat is that, um, you know, people are going to bring it in from outside of the country. And, and if it suddenly goes sideways, if, if they lose control, uh, everyone's going to forget about the past 10, 10 successful months. And the big question will be, what what the heck happened? How did you, how did you screw this up? So, you know, I can I can I can be somewhat sympathetic to the desire to, to be somewhat draconian with with rules and, and regulations. Yeah, but but to come into the government's defense a little bit, I mean, just just like um, Gavin said, the, the the four DJs spend in the same quarantine apartment. So the regulation being, if each of the rooms in the apartment has their own bath and then people are allowed to quarantine in their own rooms but of course they are not allowed to you know socialize in, in the common area and that's what that's the rule they broke um so contrasting that with uh, this migrant worker who is being quarantined in in a, in a single hotel room um and 
And so he's really breaking quarantine by coming out to the public area. So that's why the regulation is a bit different. Um, and still, I mean, it looks bad. But but being that the situation right now, all the cases, new cases right now, almost all the new cases right now are coming from, you know, um, outside of Taiwan. So that's why the government's been extremely untold about this. And especially there's a new, you know, cases coming in from Vietnam, the migrant workers. So this is a lot of attention being paid to how the government, you know, um, manage the healthcare uh, situation with the migrant workers. So I, I, I don't blame them for, you know, being extremely cautious about this. And Bill, do you think possibly there should be some sort of, if you're finding someone for violating quarantine laws, however they're violated, the, the fine should be the same and they should be fined under the same law? Yeah, I agree with that. I think there's there there should be should be some type of standard. Um, just one more thing about the Filipino worker. It's my understanding that he left this room for eight seconds to go across the hall to put something at the door of his his fellow worker across the hall. Right. Uh, so he he wasn't going out to to roam around or anything um, or to have contact with other people. So. Yeah, I, I just I, I think in this case uh, maybe a warning would have been a better approach. Yeah, I think the government's trying to set an example, right? Because um, cause if anything happens, I mean, people would be extremely hard on the regulators say, why would you, you know, still not closing the borders, keep allowing in those migrant workers? So, I mean, at the same time, this fine may seem, you know, uh, draconian, like Bill said. But if you're thinking about that, compare this with uh, closing the entire migrant, you know, worker system. Um, I think this would be much better than to, to all the fellow migrant workers. And staying with migrant workers and coronavirus, of course, Bill, this week the government took steps to better monitor the dormitories that the migrant workers are living in due to concerns that coronavirus cases could be spreading in these dormitories that are often overcrowded. I think that's a, that's a very, very smart move. I mean, we've seen all the trouble that Singapore has had um, with controlling the virus, especially in the, in the, in the migrant workers' dormitories. It's a, it's a really serious kind of vector of transmission, and um, I, I really applaud that action. That, that, that is right on the nail, man. I mean, because I mean, in Taiwan, I mean, we are a country that touted our, you know, human rights achievements. But uh, if you look at... Uh, the migrant workers, you know, housing situation, especially with the in in the fishing industry, where the migrant workers are crowded on small boats, um, and even in some other industries, they, they, the living conditions are just are just substandard. So it, it is quite horrible. So I mean, th- this is really the hot area that the government should really look into. So not only just in the quarantine, but after quarantine, you still need to make sure that the living conditions uh, allow for proper you know, social distancing and all that health precautions to be taken. And you mentioned Singapore earlier. Of course, earlier this year, Singapore had a problem with it, but Taiwan didn't seem to... Migrant worker dormitories didn't come into the scenario, so to speak. Yeah, that's that's very interesting, and and um, it's it's um, it's commendable though that they are they are taking a close look at it now. 
Anyway, moving on, and human rights were the focus on Thursday as government officials were marking Human Rights Day. President Tsai Ing-wen described human rights as being a fundamental priority in the government's promotion of policy reforms in the future. And speaking at an event marking, well, Human Rights Day, Tsai said in the future, human rights will be given priority in the government's promotion of policy reforms and protection of the rights of civil servants. The president also indicated that she's pleased to see several government agencies drafting human rights education plans and said that she believes Taiwan can strengthen its international cooperation and enhance foreign relations through promotion of human rights. Now, the National Human Rights Commission took the opportunity to focus on the death penalty, saying the government should correct numerous procedural problems in the way that it's carried out. According to the Human Rights Commission, procedural problems exist with how the Ministry of Justice implements punishments, such as not allowing enough time for inmates to file appeals and the lack of clear regulations on the respective responsibilities of prison staff and court bailiffs. The Commission also said that the Justice Ministry also executes inmates in cases where they have applied for a presidential pardon but have not yet received a response, which the Commission said contravenes the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And it concluded that the Ministry of Justice needs to conduct a comprehensive review of its procedures regarding the death penalty. While Premier Su Jung Chung announced on Thursday again that a national action plan on business and human rights. According to Su, the government believes that by putting strong emphasis on human rights issues, especially those related to labour issues, it will help boost Taiwan's ability to negotiate international trade deals. The Premier said that it's hoped that the Cabinet's plan will strengthen efforts to help Taiwan further integrate itself into international trade and supply chains and also help attract more foreign companies to invest in Taiwan. While KMT Chairman Johnny Jung visited the National Human Rights Museum and speaking to reporters there, Jung said the KMT must be humble and truly face up to its past mistakes during the White Terror era as revealing the truth, offering consolation and reaching reconciliation is the only way Taiwan can heal the wounds of history and uphold transitional justice. So, Xiao, a lot to go through there, but let's start with President Tsai Ing-wen talking about the government promoting more human rights policies. Exactly. I mean, the human rights issues are front and center with the Thai administration, right? So in, in her speech, she actually mentioned three major progresses. So first of all, um, her administration established organizations and laws that promote tra- tra- transitional justice, such as the Transitional Justice Commission. And secondly, uh, as she establishes the National Human Rights Museum, which is uh, everybody can visit in Xindian. It, it is a very somber place that reminds everybody of the, the, the Budo Pass in the, in the white terror era. And thirdly, um, her administration established an independent human rights commission um, to advance and protect human rights. So this commission is in the control UN and led by uh, the, the, the uh, uh, chief uh, Chen Ji. So, I mean, by, by doing all this, we, we are really signaling to the international community that Taiwan is uh, is really working you know, out of the her um, past, where we um, the past administrations abuse human rights, jail dissidents, and we set a very contrasting example to our cross-strait neighbor, China, right? Because to this day, um, not only they keep prosecuting the, the political dissidents, and you can see in Hong Kong where people's freedoms and rights and freedom of speech are being taken away, and more and more people are being sent to prison for political um um, voices in their, their politics. So this is really something that the President Tsai is trying to set um, as the Taiwan's uh, flagship achievement in during her uh, past four years and the future uh, four years in, in her administration. I think the um, 
the 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 campaign for business and human rights is is a brilliant initiative. Um, you know, it really helps Taiwan strengthen its case for for being a reliable partner that maintains high standards and, and a very sophisticated and advanced um, economy in a, in a very sophisticated and advanced business market. And like Chow said, it, it also helps differentiate uh, Taiwan from China, um, where you know this is a, this is a growing concern for for companies. Uh, you know, recently we've seen. We've seen the campaign against cotton grown in the western region of Xinjiang, where, where human human rights violations are, are rife. Um, so this is a, just again a brilliant way for Taiwan to differentiate itself and, and really hit on that uh, message that it's a reliable, really a reliable part partner, uh, maintaining high standards. And shout, of course, the National Human Rights Commission, like you said, was established under the control of UN, but of course it was established in rather some rather controversial circumstances. Do you think that could hinder anything it tries to do? Yeah, um, but still, I mean, they, they set out pretty, you know, high, you know, ambitious goals, right? So this, I mean, the, the past circumstances and although the, the situation with confirming, you know, the, the control UN members and, and the chief change uh, aside, I mean, we still look at this establishment of Human Rights Commission with uh, very high hopes, right? Because this is uh, uh, going to be Taiwan's the highest level agency that's going to oversee the government's, you know, day-to-day operation, whether it uh, sufficiently protects the human rights of uh, its citizens. So, and and also it it sets a, a goal of trying to face in the history because um, human rights is not about you know going going forward with of course we need to protect every citizen's human rights but looking back what what's the transitional justice for Taiwan's you know past on you know, uh, political dissidents who are being prosecuted so how do they get their uh, reputations back how do they get their properties back and their, their uh, you know their descendants how do they clear their names of a family so this is a very important too so I think this task all fell on the shoulder of uh, Chen Ji and the, the Human Rights Commission to make sure that going forward Taiwan is not only you know protecting future rights but also looking back and correct the wrongs of the history. And of course, Bill Johnny Jung, the county chairman, did go to the National Human Rights Museum. Yeah, I'd have to have to commend him for that. Um, you know, I think the the opposition Nationalist Party, the Kuomintang, has has still has uh, quite a bit of a history to, to face up to, and and, and it's 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 uh, it's commendable that he's he's doing that. Yeah, I, I mean, sorry, I'm I, I totally agree with Bill. I mean, I I also highly commend, you know, Chairman Zhang's uh, action and words, right? Because it, it is not easy to, to hear those words coming out of uh, a chairman of KMT. Um, and it is rare, um, to say the least. So um, being a brave chairman that he is right now, I mean, th- this is going to set a, a, a resounding example for the party. But of course, today's China Times newspaper headline, Certain aspects and supporters of the KMT were outside the government buildings yesterday yelling that this administration is worse than the administration of Chiang Kai-shek. <laughs> In what way, though? I mean, we don't kill people for their expressing their political views and we don't jail people. Um, it, maybe, I, I think they're referring to maybe, for example, um, the closing of the uh, their beloved television station, right? But uh, touting the freedom of expression. But if you 
compare that. There's no comparison because I mean, um, the, the television station to to veer off topic a bit, um, is so much in 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 control of the uh the, the influence of China. So, so th- this is something that that is really no comparison in that. And of course, Bill, we've also had sort of pan-blue-leaning individuals and politicians claiming that the DPP government is green terror. Green terror. Yeah, that's... uh yeah, that, that, there's a lot of a lot of a lot of irony when you you know you can't help but feel a lot of irony when you when you hear these types of things and and it's certainly a lot of it's certainly extremely hyperbolic. Anyway, let's talk about the other issue of the day yesterday, that being the Human Rights Commission taking well, it took note of the procedural problems in the death sentence bill. So I mean, obviously problems with the way that Ministry of Justice handles death penalty cases. Yeah, it's that's that's another that's another hot potato kind of kind of issue that's it's going to be hard for for Taiwan to resolve. Yeah, I mean that's penalty cases are always you know uh, hot button issues, right? Because in, in the past, um, you know some citizens always criticize the government for using the death penalty to try to divert attention from uh, any other controversies that that may be happening. So you see that um, people the the, the the government randomly executes uh, prisoners um, just right out out of uh, any you know things that they they don't want to talk about. So th- this is something that that this really needs to um, be looking seriously into. That does Taiwan really need to keep its uh, deaths you know punishment sentence? Um, and there's a lot of acti- activists on the ground uh, you know championing for the punishment of uh, death penalties. And um, I-, I think. This, you know, Human Rights Commission should really seriously investigate the possibility of that. I mean, do you think it could possibly stymie investment in Taiwan if Taiwan continues to have the death penalty? Um, I don't. I don't really see that happening. Uh, you know, um, there's. I don't think it's something that that multinationals or, or, or venture capitalists or private equity really really looks at very closely. But, I mean, who's looking at it, Xiao? Who do you think is looking outside of Taiwan? Who's looking at Taiwan's death penalty and going, stop that? I think a lot of international, you know, NGOs, um, especially human rights, especially the AI and, and, and nasty international, they are looking at this very, very closely, right? So they uh, wrote reports, annual reports, you know, summarizing Taiwan's human rights issues, uh, all, the, all the world's human rights issues. And one of the... Uh, Recurring theme in Taiwan is that um, our government keep executing our, our prisoners. Um, so this lack of um, serious political will on the ground for Taiwan to uh, champion such a abolishment of a, you know death penalty, but it is an issue that the international community cares strongly about. And another week, another food safety issue, albeit mention of one that was quickly nipped in the bud and managed to stay pretty much under the radar as regards loud protests in the legislative chamber. As Taiwan's top envoy to Japan on Sunday took to his Facebook page to broach the thorny issue of imports of Japanese food products from the Fukushima and other areas affected by the 2011 nuclear meltdown there. Frank Scher said that Taiwan should not allow imports of Japanese food that could be contaminated by radiation for the sake of public health, but it should allow imports of food free of radiation. He went on to say that whether food products contain trace levels of radiation should be determined by scientific testing, not by politics or majority of the people. Now, the comments, of course, come amid speculation the government could seek to lift the long-time ban on food products from five Japanese prefectures in order to 
boost its chances of joining the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. And Cher said that if there is no scientific justification for the ban on food imports from the prefectures, it could fuel opposition to Taiwan's participation in the Japan-led trade bloc. Now, Premier Su Jung Chang on Tuesday stressed to reporters when quizzed about these comments by Frank Cher that the cabinet is in no hurry to open the island's market to foods from the five Japanese prefectures. So, Bill, here we go again. The, the other food scandal's ongoing and the Premier tried to step in and step any, con- any controversy in the bud immediately regarding this one. Right, um, right, Gavin. I think what we're seeing is uh, within this high administration a battle between the internationalists and the nationalists. I mean, you know, the, the internationalists and uh, Frank Chier is one, obviously, that um, wants to cultivate, build better relationships with important important allies countries like like Japan wants to tighten Taiwan's linkages with with the with the global economy wants to open up open up markets here and sees you know great value in in you know letting in these these food products from Japan that that uh, you know reportedly would be would be tested for radiation but on the other hand you have the nationalists and I think premier su is uh, a perfect example of 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 that of that uh, that part of the the, the government, and um, you know he's very very fixed on being very careful about what 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 how to spend political capital, and very concerned about domestic opinion, and and very concerned about winning the next elections, and um, and he's already dealing with the fallout of the of the the, the pork ractopamine pork uh, uh, relaxation of of the ban on, on that, um, and I think he he all along he, he was one of the one of the most vociferous vociferous uh, opponents of that lifting that ban on pork. It's my understanding. So, um, so yeah, it's it's we'll continue to see this push and pull within within the government. Yeah, I mean, we feel like it's another familiar episode with um, you know food safety, right? Um, because I feel like food safety is a scientific issue. Whether it's uh, it, it's it's edible, it, it's safe to eat. It, it's up to the scientists to decide. So, I mean, I mean, Taiwan, we see that people use the issue of food safety for political reasons. So right now, you see KMT using the pro, you know, throwing pro livers in inside of a parliament. I'm trying to make a point. Um, but in the end, they if they care about you know. Pork or the, the 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 you know issues, but they are the administration to open up U.S. beef in the past. So this is something that people just juggle and then use as political games. And in the end, whether if it's food that's safe to eat, and it is so easy to be checked scientifically. So I mean, that 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 to be said, we always champion this uh, safe import of safe. Um, foods to the Taiwan but in the end it's not it should not be used as a political reason and of course Bill do you think of course the government will eventually have to do something about this issue it can't not do anything about it it's going to ha- some government is going to have to tackle the issue of whether Taiwan imports food from these five prefectures it's never going to go away I think I think it is something that they will have to they'll have to face up um, to because you know Japan is Japan is an important Important country for for Taiwan, and and um, and Taiwan can't afford to continue to be minimized on the on the on the global stage. It's it's got to it's got to strengthen its its partnerships, and it's got to really recognize uh, who its, its friends are and and how to how to treat them well. But on the other hand, I mean, we shouldn't hurry to you know open up the import just because we are 
I in the you know joining of the uh, CPTPP, the uh, Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, right? So either way, the 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 food issue should be um, dealt with seriously and in a scientific way. So in this case, I agree with Premier Su Jin Chang that there's no hurry to uh, open it up. We should continue to monitor and, and investigate investigate this issue. Because, of course, we don't want KMT lawmakers throwing radiation things <laughs> in the legislative chamber, of course. Pig livers, <laughs> intestines, and awful one thing. Radiated products and things, no, not a good idea. <laughs> not at all. Anyway, we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and both the Central Bank and the Cabinet this week announced measures aimed at reining in speculation in the local property market. The Central Bank's plan seeks to tighten regulations governing mortgages extended by banks. Now, the bank has imposed a ceiling on home loans for the first home, while enterprises and other legal entities will pay a 60% of the home's values when they try to get those loans. Now, for a second home bought by enterprises and other legal entities, the ceiling on mortgages there has been set at 50%, and for third individual home buyers, the mortgage cap has been set at 60%. The central bank has also said that when property developers ledge homes that they have built in the last five years and never sold as collateral, they will not be allowed to secure loans topping 50% of the property's value. Meanwhile, the cabinet announced a four-point plan aimed at increasing market transparency while also protecting the right to privacy. And it says it will hope it will help keep housing prices at a reasonable level. According to the Premier, the measures will improve the system for publicly disclosing property prices, strengthening reporting requirements for transactions involving pre-sold houses and give regulators more power to conduct investigative audits. Now, Su Jung Chung also said that the new measures are also geared towards increasing penalties for providing inaccurate information or failing to report sales properly. While the Ministry of the Interior on Thursday said that a public disclosure plan will make the price and full address of all real estate transactions searchable to the public, while realtors will have to report transactions of pre-sold houses within 30 days of each said sale. And the ministry also says that will give potential buyers a more timely understanding of property prices. So, Xiao, of course, we've seen ballooning property prices pretty much island-wide over the past several years. Yes, we have. Um, and these measures are believed to be um, really in a step of the right direction, right? Because uh, in in Taiwan, I mean, the young people are really struggling to to buy and own their homes because um, the the salary level has never risen, and if you compare it to the past few decades, it's even fell a bit. So you know, at the same time of uh, same age with my parents, um, probably a lot of people are making a lot less than their parents were were making. So how to own a home has become a dream of um, most of young Taiwanese, um, you know workers and, and families so but this keep the, the housing price keep rising and rising in the past few decades is really a put a dent in that dream so this step in the right direction including that um making the uh the the, the loans harder to get if you already own many homes this is gonna going to make sure that people do not just buy homes in order to renovate and then just keep selling to making the price going higher and higher and higher so I, I i'm happy to see that the government is taking concrete steps in this direction and i applaud them for it 
Yeah, I mean, the government is taking the regulatory approach, which, which in my mind is is the the easy way out to, to solving this this uh, this problem. And I, I don't I don't see it becoming effective in the in the long run. I mean, what we're talking about, like Shao said, that that um, you know, the, so many young people, even even those with with good jobs, can't cannot afford to buy an a, a apartment, a home. I think what's going on here is that the um, real estate is is where rich people are. Parking their money in Taiwan now. A lot of these rich people these are these are entrepreneurs, business people who went to China in the eighties and nineties, um, did really well, made made a, made a lot of money. Uh, they're getting cashing out of China right now. They're selling their factories. Uh, they're retiring, or, or uh, the cost structure in China has changed. Or now they're competing with their part, their former partners who are subsidized by the government. But anyway, they're they're cashing out. They're bringing the money back to Taiwan. And what are they doing with it? Um, they're investing in real estate. Uh, you know, some people call this zombie zombie capital. Um, they're they're investing in, in real estate and pushing pushing the prices up. So what what else could they be doing with it? Um, what they could be doing is they could be in, in investing it in new businesses. They could be creating new businesses. If if Taiwan had some type of kind of new industrial economic development plan that would channel this capital into new businesses that would create new jobs for new higher paying jobs for for young people. And, and give them a chance to uh, afford a, a, a flat, a, a home. Um, you know, but the, the challenge is, though, the, is the owners of this financial capital, they're, they're very, very conservative, and they're still just willing to invest it in, in real estate. But again, there's an opportunity for, for bigger thinking here for Taiwan to develop um, the, the next state of Taiwan's industrial development. And of course, Xiao, obviously, the developers are investing their money in fancy new high-rises that, of course, Joe Blow can't really afford. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I agree 100% with Bill, what Bill just said. Um, because my my parents and my parents' generation did exactly the same thing. They parked their monies in their houses, in many of their houses, um, not my parents, but I saw many, uh, many of uh, <laughs> older folks just uh, keep parking and parking their capital in houses, um, and that that had dual effects, right? Number one, they drives up the housing prices. Number two, then there, that means there's not enough capital to go into businesses, and for the businesses that we care about, the young younger generation of Taiwan care about is is the startups. Um, young people wants to make it their own. They start a new company. They they uh, and they find it very hard to attract capital. So sometimes they have to go into the international capital to to actually get the capital they need. But locally, um, when they ask their older folks to to for investment in their business, they find that their business is too risky for their older folks because they are so accustomed to these low-risk housing investment portfolios um, and they find that investing in business is so risky. So that's, so. What, what do young people do? Then they have to start a less risky business, right? They start a coffee shop. <laughs> they, they sell breakfast. So you will not find a very um, risk-taking entrepreneurship in Taiwan. Young people are just risk-averse. And that has a tremendous detrimental effect to Taiwan's uh, economy, uh, internet industries, um, and creative folks. They either they have to leave Taiwan or they have to stay here and do something else.
And of course, Bill, one of the problems is the pre-sale issue where developers put up your big buildings of supposedly pre-sold lots of apartments in these buildings. But that's a bit of a that's a bit of a lie because they quite haven't sold as many buildings in these apartments as they said they did, leaving them pretty much with an empty high rise. Yeah, it's really remarkable, remarkable walking around some parts of Taipei at night and looking at these buildings that are, that are, that are all dark. It's very common and quite sad, actually. And of course, Taichung, Kaohsiung, they both have the same problem, Xiao. Exactly. I mean, that is, I wouldn't want to call it a scam, but it, it, it's a pattern that these uh, builders, they just, they, they build. And before they even sell what they build, they, they, they remortgage it and build even more. So that's uh, that, that's the, the loop that they're running on. So I, I hope that the measures that the government is taking on can put a put a break to that and then make sure that, that this is stop happening. And do you see housing prices going down in the near future, or possibly that's going to take some time? Well, I'm not so confident, but but I hope that as more and more people draw attention to this issue, because I've seen a lot of uh, not only the legislators but also uh, city council members draw a lot of attention to this issue. Um, and especially the mayor Cohen uh, is uh, is building the more social, I mean, affordable housing. So I, I think it's going to be a notable effect in the future. I definitely think it'll be a pretty big effect in the future. Anyway, moving away from housing and talking about parades, where an annual temple parade raised some iry feelings in Taipei this past weekend. Now, while colourful and noisy temple festivals are pretty much commonplace here, the three-day Qingshan Festival at the Jingshan Temple in Taipei's Wanhua District managed to be a wee wit too noisy and as a result of that it saw the city's department of environmental protection receiving over 500 complaints about well noise pollution while the Wanhua police precinct said it received over 650 complaints and issued tickets for over 900 traffic violations during the festival now the Jingshan temple said that this year's event was larger than those of previous years attracting over 100,000 people because it marked the festival's 165th anniversary Taipei Mayor Kerwenja promised a review meeting to look at ways to make improvements and following that meeting, City Hall proposed three ways to make improvements, those being to establish a higher level emergency response centre to supervise and integrate resources, to ask organisers to significantly reduce the noise and the number of firecrackers, and thirdly, to provide clear plans for the parade route and a schedule. While the temple itself also issued a list of improvements, those being to ban dangerous fireworks, now that was in response to a fire that broke out on the roof of a five-storey building as the festival parade actually passed by it. Also to reduce the the amount of firecrackers and replace them with food offerings and also to limit the period in which firecrackers can be set off. To Shao, noisy temple festivals. <laughs> yes, it, it is truly noisy. Even um, even if you live across the Danshui River, you can still hear it. Uh, that's a complaint that uh, we've uh, seen uh, a lot of people have been getting, the special, including the uh, Taipei government and also legislator Freddie Lim's uh, um, one choir, of course. Yes. I was going to ask about how, how many how many complaints can Freddie get? Well, lots and lots of complaints. And people were so angry because um, they say that uh, it's three o'clock in the morning and it's still having uh, lighting fireworks. Um, so and say we have kids at home trying to sleep. We have, we have old people, old folks here uh, trying to sleep. Um, so a lot of people are extremely angry and rightfully so, right? Because because um, this is. Granted, this is a almost a two hundred year tradition, right? Qinshan Gong um, of Qinshan Gods, um, they they come here and then offering the paying their tribute to to the gods um, every year, um, and it is a wonderful tradition. So right now in this uh, booming city of Taipei, it becomes a 
a question, a struggle to how you merge a long tradition with the with the local, you know, city structure. Because more and more people move into Wanhua, unknowing that this tradition is going be going to be so big and so loud every year. So when they have fireworks still going on three o'clock in the morning, how do you make sure that people are, are you know? As number one, safe, and number two, it's gonna not not going to disturb people too much. Um, so this is always a struggle. But but um, but that being said, this is year they they have they expanded the scope of uh, the parades, um, and a lot of people trying to. Um, so the issue is that uh, the, the the temples are selling the firecrackers, so people um, the Shintus, the 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 guys who want to worship the gods buy the firecrackers and they have when they bought it they have a right to light it right because there's so many of them so they have to take turns lighting the firecrackers and the turn goes all the way to 6 a.m. in the morning so that's what happens <laughs> but make sure yeah so the city government's trying to really make sure next year and in the future this is really under regulation, number one, it does not cause any fires, and number two, we want to make sure the fireworks stop properly, you know, before midnight. Yes, I, I don't know. My my attitude is is that this doesn't happen every night. It's it's it happens uh, a certain time of the year for a set period of time, uh, three days, right? And uh, I think I think people have to just accept it's it's just, it's uh, every neighborhood has its own character, its own characteristics, and this is what's going to happen in this neighborhood at this time of year. Um, it's just like, if, if you don't like Mardi Gras, don't move to Rio, or don't go to, go, don't go to New Orleans during that time of year. Um, I, I lived in the United States in, in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, home of the University of Michigan, that um, had has one of the biggest football stadiums in the world, and and you know every weekend on game day the, the the town would would be filled with people coming to watch football and the tailgate and the drink and party and and that was just part of the part of the town. That's what happens in that town on a Sunday and a Saturday in 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 the, in the fall, and you just learn to live around it. I think these people that live around this temple in Wanhua may maybe if if it annoys them so much, maybe they should get out of town for take a long holiday, a long weekend or something, and get out of town to avoid the the racket if it bothers them so much. But of course, Shao, looking at the other way, of course, if if a bunch of noisy oiks were outside your apartment letting off fireworks at three o'clock in the morning, <laughs> you would call the local police. The local yes. police would come along and it would tell the oiks to go home. But of course, you, this is like thousands of people at a festival related to a temple. The police aren't going to go out and tell those oiks to go home. That, that's true, um, because number one, it's religious freedom, right? Because, um, yeah, a temple <laughs> has the freedom to celebrate in a way that the tradition dictates. Um, and I agree with Bill. I mean, it, it is a tradition. It happens every single year in the same place. So people living around there should already grow accustomed to it. Um, but that being said, this year they actually expanded, you know, the celebration so much. I mean, it used to be like 30,000, but this year it's almost more than 100,000. So, I mean, it is noisy. There is no question about that. And, and, and it went on for three days. So if it's just for a day or two, uh, I'll say just put up with it. But it's three <laughs> days and every every night they, they light fireworks until three in the morning. I, I'll say, come on, next year let's try to bring it under control. But it could affect housing prices. <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> it must be a great economic impact in the neighborhood with people. Airbnb, every, yeah. every year, Yeah, I guess. Right. If, you, if you're a housing speculator, as we're not 
saying you should be, but, you know, there's a place to put your Airbnb money. Anyway, before we go this week, it's that time of year once again when facts, figures and polls are released, looking back at the year that was. And on Tuesday of this week, the United Daily News annual poll to pick the Chinese character of the year was announced. And this year's top character was E, which I'm going to crucify, but that means epidemic. Now, according to the newspaper, a total of 82,631 votes were cast for this year's character of the year poll. An epidemic topped the list by getting 28,441 of those said votes. Now, the runner-up character was Shu, meaning to store, which garnered 15,722 votes, while the character Mun, meaning stuffy, placed third after getting 6,169 votes. Now, the Chinese characters, meaning safe and tough, rounded out the top five. So, Xiao, was Epidemic your character of the year? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's everybody's character of the year. Come on. I mean, this is... Uh, but but for me, I would definitely vote for uh, Men. I mean, it's just very stuffed because I want to go outside of Taiwan. I mean, it's time already. <laughs> Come on. So, it, but still, it's still not safe. So, and why? Because it's, it's because of this epidemic. So, I mean, th- this is really a tough year, 2020. And hopefully next year will just bring turn every, everything to for the better. And of course, Bill, the runner-up was store, as in like panic buy. <laughs> I can, I can, I can understand that. I think, uh, I think my my character would be the character, uh, which means it can mean evil or it can mean uh, nauseous, as in uh, xin. I just love I love words that where the sound matches the meeting, you know. And and uh, for, for when I when I think of twenty twenty, I definitely think of uh. It was a uh, year. Uh, so Shao, would you pick another character? If you could pick your character for the year, yeah, I'll I'll pick Man. Just like I said, it's very very uh, stuffy. And I I want to travel. I want to go to Japan, U.S. anywhere but Taiwan. <laughs> Anyway, Google on this week also announced that U.S. presidential elections were the most searched for item here on ta- in Taiwan, rather. And that's on Google, of course, and that was followed by Wuhan coronavirus. And now, according to Google's Year in Search report, Donald Trump also made the top 10 most popular search here in Taiwan, but he ranked ninth, so I guess he didn't win that either. So what was your big search for this year, Bill? Um, I think um, it would have to be vaccine. Any particular vaccine? Um, any vaccine that would, <laughs> would keep me safe from this virus. <laughs> no, I was, I was fascinated. I was fascinated with, with I, I realized I knew so little about vaccines, how hard it was to, to, to develop them and also to, to store them and transport them. And, and um, so, yeah, I, I found myself looking that up quite a bit. And Xiao, what was your big search for this year on Google? Well, definitely it's the U.S. election, right? Because it's so complex with the electoral college, with that all, all the rules. I mean, for Taiwanese, we we struggle to understand why the winner is not the one with the most votes. So we have to look it up <laughs> and see what the game rules are. And then, but surprisingly, a lot of you Taiwanese people do the search understand quite well the system. So I mean, uh, we, we are really right there with the Americans within this election. And that's all we'll leave it here on Taiwan This Week. This week, and I've been joined in the studio today by William Foreman. Great to be here. And Xiao Xin Chung. Good night, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. (music) 
Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.